God, uh, you have all the power in the church. You are the head of the body. And uh, Lord, we just so desire for your body to be healthy, uh, to be doing what it does best, proclaiming the hope of the gospel. Um, and I just, we, we pray for Ken. We lift him up uh, as he travels uh, to train, uh, to connect with leaders of the church in the UK as he sees our sister church, Stockwell. Uh, Lord, that his presence would just be an encouragement um, that you'd give him wisdom and knowledge and uh, just a, a real uh, blessed time where he gets to see you at work um, and gets to see your kingdom at work in such a way that just broadens his vision of you uh, and what you're doing in the world. And may we be blessed uh, by this experience that he has as well. Um, Lord, and as we turn to your word today, we just pray uh, that you would speak clearly uh, mightily, uh, that your spirit would lead and guide my words, uh, that they would be your words, that we would have ears to hear uh, and eyes to see what you have for us, um, that Christ, you hold all things together, and that is the best news. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said, keep your Bibles open. Um, we'll be coming back to that passage. Um, but before we do, I was wondering... Um, if you guys like bonsai trees. Anyone? Yeah. Thank you, Lance. Um, they're so cool, right? Um, they're this little miniature package of wonderful treeness, um, all cute and manicured. Did you know that bonsai trees um, are not a type of tree? Uh, they're actually any tree can be a bonsai. Uh, it's trained to be small. Uh, it's trained to be tiny, it's clipped meticulously in such a way um, that actually means it never reaches full maturity in the size that it could. Um, here's a picture of, next slide please, a giant sequoia bonsai tree. Isn't that awesome? Um, biggest tree in the world, biggest tree in the world, bonsai. Um, and. Uh, this is fascinating because Hannah and I were in Sequoia National Park last year, just in awe of how massive sequoias can get. Uh, so go to the next picture. Um, these are <laughs> giant sequoias as they naturally come. Can you see Hannah? Those of you in the back, can you see Hannah? Here, we'll go to the next slide and you can really see her. Boom. <laughs> These weren't the biggest ones. These weren't the biggest ones. Actually, the biggest one is a tree called General Sherman. I don't know why they're all generals and presidents and stuff, but it's estimated that General Sherman is 3,200 years old and that the volume of the tree is 53,000 cubic feet. Now, just to put that in perspective, that's around 13 semi-trucks worth of tree. 13. Uh, huge, massive, massive tree. Well, here's the point. Um, I think we can do. I think we can do to what that person did to that poor giant sequoia bonsai uh, with our faith. I think, um, actually, quite unintentionally, we can reduce our faith by reducing our vision of who Christ is. We can actually curate our faith in such a way that it's small, that it's manageable, and ultimately that it's shaky. 
But, as this passage tells us, when, when the fullness of Christ is actually seen and our hope is put in that, we can actually grow into full maturity, way bigger than we could ever dream, when we allow the master gardener to actually have his way of growing faith in our life. And that's what we're talking about this week in this series uh, we are calling The Well-Worn Path, uh, which is just the way that Christians have always grown in their faith. Uh, the, way, the things that we've done, uh, the, the ways in which uh, for the last 2,000 years, God has created faith in his people. And I think it's actually a great misconception that uh, only religious people have faith because we actually all operate our lives on faith, right? We make faith decisions all the time. For example, those of you who drove here, Did you know for certainty that your car was going to start when you got in it? Some of you with car trouble are like, actually, I thought it probably wouldn't. Um, Did you know that the road wouldn't be blocked when you were on your way? Did you know that we all didn't just decide to stay at home, watch Netflix, and cuddle up because it's raining and that sounds nice? No, you didn't know any of that, but on faith... On the certain hope and assurance that what you believe is coming, you made a decision. And that's just, you know, that's just travel. You know, we can apply that to our jobs. It's gonna, is it going to be there tomorrow? We can apply that to our spouses. We can apply that uh, to any part of our lives. And, and Hebrews 11.1 describes faith like this. It says, Faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. We can't operate our human existence without confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. That's the way God set it up. And the challenge of this passage today is to to kind of be self-reflective. What have you put your ultimate hope in? What is your ultimate faith in? What, what hope is it rooted in? Is it rooted in Jesus or is it rooted in something else? And a steadfast faith in the well-worn path grows like a tree to full maturity when we're hoping in the person of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and the purpose of Jesus. Steadfast faith grows from hoping in the person of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and the purpose of Jesus. And I'm sure you all perfectly understood everything that Jamie just read, uh, because it was really understandable and totally language that we use on a daily basis. Definitely not. Um, But this passage... Is, is one of the highest, most comprehensive, most detailed visions of who Christ is in his person, in his power, and in his purpose. And when we really see that, our faith can grow. So before we actually jump into the verses 15 through 20, where we see that in its full, I want to talk about faith and keep talking about this idea of steadfast faith. Because the goal of the well-worn path, as I said, is to gain a steadfast faith. And steadfast faith comes from steadfast hope. So if you would go with me to verse 22, 
We're going to start there. He says right before that, that you are actually enemies of God um, in our minds. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. If you continue your faith, if you remain steadfast in your faith. Now, I find this kind of interesting reading the whole letter of Colossians because a lot of what Paul can, continues to commend the Colossians for was their faith, right? We saw that in the last two sermons. Paul only knows about them because of their great faith and their great love of God's people, the fruit that they're bearing, all parts of what faith produces in a community. Yet, Paul encourages their young faith in the hope of the gospel because his aim for them is not just simply like a flash-in-the-pan spirituality. He doesn't want them to make it on the spiritual L.A. list. His goal for them is to continue in their faith for the long haul. Because the success of someone's faith in Jesus is not marked by their eagerness at first, but it's marked by their faithfulness till the end. Let me say that again. Jesus, the, someone's faith in Jesus is not marked by their eagerness at first, but marked by their faithfulness till the end. And his dream for them is that their faith would be established and firm, like the deep roots of the sequoia. So much so that it would be absolutely firm on the hope held out in the gospel. I will say that the, the if, if you continue in this passage, used to scare me, <laughs> right? It's like, oh, all this is true. It's so true. If you continue in your faith. But as I have continued in my faith, it becomes more and more a source of confidence and hope. Because the truth is, Christianity is not marked by perfection. It's marked by perseverance. Not marked by perfection, but perseverance. Or as N.T. Wright puts it, I think it'll be up on the screen, genuine faith is seen in patient and steadfast day-to-day Christian living while counterfeit faith so hard in its early stages to distinguish from the real thing withers and dies. Now again, that sounds kind of threatening, but do you see the hope in that? It's not that you need perfect belief, perfect actions, perfect theology. It's about perseverance, about patient, steadfast, day-to-day Christian living. And the, the temptation for anyone's faith journey is to give up, to move away from the hope held out in the gospel because something happens. Your faith gets tested because you're sick, because you break up, because you lose a job, because God feels distant. But, but Paul continues... To, to actually help them understand their faith. He doesn't just say, good luck, continuing. I'll see you hopefully down the road. <clears throat> Rather, his vision of a steadfast faith is to tie them directly to the hope that's held out in the gospel. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about the cat money course that we've all gone through. And one of their principles is to actually save in order for future expenditures. Crazy, right? Not just put it on a credit card. Save and then buy it in cash. 
Um, it's a very similar principle to, to what Paul is saying here. He's saying, if you want to continue in your faith in the hard times, you need to understand your hope in the good times. So, how do we prepare for the hard times when our faith feels shaky and movable? We grow daily in the understanding of our hope. Which is exactly what Paul's statement about Jesus are in 15 to 22. It's the statement of our hope. Because the steadfastness of your faith is equal to the hope that you have in the object of your faith. And that, in our case, is Jesus. Or to put it another way, your hope in the person and the power and the purpose of Jesus is the bedrock of the Christian faith. And if you want to have a steadfast faith that lasts till the end, you must deepen what you believe about Jesus himself. So, I can't think of a better passage to do that with. So let's go back all the way to verse 15. And we're going to start by looking at the hope we can have in the person of Jesus Hope in the person of Jesus. And what he says is, it was because Jesus is fully God and fully man, there is no person who can hold the weight of our hope like him. He's utterly unique and utterly capable. So verse 15, he says, the son is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. Jesus is God. Essentially, what he's saying is that if you want to see what God is like, you look at Jesus. He is the exact representation of God. Not a copy. He is God. But he goes further. He he says in verse 17, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Meaning, he didn't at one point become God. Instead, he's always been God. Jesus is eternally God. Lastly, if Paul wasn't clear enough, verse 19, for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. So there isn't an aspect of God that is missing in Jesus. Every bit of Jesus is God. Or like Ken was saying last week, it's like the full cup. If Jesus was a full cup and you spilled him, only God could spill out. (laughs) And here's the point or at least one of them, Uh, Jesus is utterly unique. There's no one like him. There was no one like him. There will be no one like him. He is utterly consistent. Or as Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's fully God. So secondly, we can see from this statement that he's also fully human. Verse 20 says, He made peace, through his blood shed. Only humans with bodies bleed. Only humans are vulnerable to death. And in case Paul wasn't clear enough in verse 22, he says that God reconciles us by Christ's physical body through death. Jesus had a physical body. I was talking to someone this week And they said something that I think rings true. Birth and death are the only two things that are definitely common to all humans. Everyone's been born and everyone will die. Not to be too intense on you this morning, but that's true, right? That is is true of every human and is true of Jesus. 
He's fully human. God made man. So when Jesus walked the earth, he wasn't pretending to be human. He was a God who became a human. Jesus lived the human experience, and he knows what it is to be in your shoes. So why is this important for our hope in Jesus? Well, I would say that that we as humans are bent toward, even created to, trust. Trust people. Think about it, right? From birth to death, most of your life is built on trusting other people. Your parents, your friends, your coworkers, your, your boss, your spouse, your children. How does that work out? Always good? Everything's always solid? They're always consistent? No. And there's probably a lot of data to back up the millions of dollars and hours spent each year by people who are just learning how to trust other people again. But that's because God made us in his image. Or as Genesis 1.27 says, God created mankind in his own image. That's how he set it up. We're supposed to be like God. We're supposed to be his image to the world. But as the story goes, we decided to be inconsistent. We decided to go our own way, to not trust God, which is what caused so many broken relationships and trust that we see now. But here's the point. You cannot put your ultimate hope in a person other than Jesus. But you, you can't put your ultimate hope in Jesus if he was just a person, because that would make him fallible. But because he's fully God, you know he'll never change. But also, I think he can win our hope and our ultimate trust because he's not a distant God. He knows what it's like to be in your shoes. His life, if you actually look at it in the Gospels, was full of a lot of crazy stuff. He fled a genocide when he was a child. He worked hard labor. He most likely lost his father because when he gets later on in his life, Joseph is nowhere to be found. He was abandoned by all of his closest friends in his time of need, and then he died an unjust death. Does Jesus know what it's like to be human? Of course he does. And this is why we can trust him. This is why we can hope in him, because he's both divine and human. Tim Keller has this saying of Jesus. He says, Jesus will always let you in and never let you down. Who can you say that about? Always let you in and never let you down. But he can only be that way because he is fully God and fully human. And our steadfast hope in the person of Jesus can't be built on anything less. So in order to continue our faith, our hope has to be rooted in the person of Jesus. So secondly, we're going to look at the power of Jesus in this passage. The power of Jesus. And I would say, besides our relationships, nothing can dash our hope quite like an unexpected interruption in our lives. Big things, like global pandemics, (laughs) your candidate doesn't win the election, you're laid off from your job, to small things, 
Like you're running late for a meeting because of traffic, your friend ghosts you when you thought you were going to hang out, your rent goes up at the end of the month, it starts to rain, <laughs> you wonder if you should go to church. Whatever it is, big to small, that's something that starts to break our hopes. And we feel hopeless because we're helpless in those situations because we don't have the power to deal with it. But Jesus' power is good news for our steadfast faith for the long haul because he has all the power over creation and power in the church. And that's what we'll look at next, this power of Jesus. So go back to verse 15. The second part of the verse says that Jesus was the firstborn over all creation For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, we don't have the time to get into all the nitty-gritty unless you want to stay here for a few hours. Maybe we can do that later. But... Here's the highlights. Jesus being the firstborn of all creation uh, doesn't just mean he was the first created thing. Because, right, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Firstborn in biblical language here more so means that, that he actually came before everything, and he was created to be supreme over it. So it has to do with time and rank. This is true because Jesus was the agent of creation. He, he wasn't created and said everything was created in him, through him, and for him. And did you notice how many times it said all things in that passage? Was there anything that wasn't created in him, through him, and for him? No, it says it four times from the biggest galaxy to the smallest atom. It was all created by him. Or as the famous Abraham Kuyper quote puts it, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. (laughs) The totality of his power is unmatched. But Jesus didn't just simply create everything and leave it be. He's still holding all things together. He has a vested interest in what he's created, and he wants to see it through. He's like an inventor who who was in the prototype phase, brought it to market, and now runs the business. So how do you know if your hope is in the fact that Jesus has all the power? How do you know? Well, here's a little test for you. Now, you probably weren't expecting a test on a Sunday. What is your gut reaction when things don't go according to your plan? What's your gut reaction? I think there's a few things, but here's a few. Do you panic? Do you pacify? Or do you pray? I know there's other reactions, but here's a few. Just just. Start to think about your last week when something didn't go according to your plan. Did you panic? Did you rush into fix-it mode where everything happens in a way that is just trying to solve this one problem, tirelessly trying to find the answer? Or maybe you panicked in such a way that you became absolutely crippled. 
and you started to despair, catastrophizing, and started to spiral. Or maybe your reaction was to pacify. This is a favorite of our generations. You just ignored it. You just ignored it. You decided, I'm going to scroll Instagram for the next three hours on those reels that never go away. Or maybe you decided, I'm just going to turn on Netflix or hang out with friends and just not think about it. But that's not dealing with the reality of the situation. Neither of those things are. Because you're trying to take back control. But you don't have the power to take back control. The other option is to pray. Pray to the one who holds all things together. That's what we talked about last week. If you want a whole sermon on why we pray, listen to last week's sermon back on the podcast. Because... Jesus has a much more intimate knowledge of the world than anyone can imagine, and especially you. And we say in our liturgy each week that we pray prayers of petition because we have a certain hope that God will hear them and answer them according to his power and his will. Do you pray? No matter who you are, situations will crop up that you have no control over, and it will lead you to one of these reactions— But the extent to which you allow your vision of Jesus to be the one who is holding all things together will determine your reaction in the big and small moments. But the power of Jesus in the world, it's not like a solo mission, Jack Reacher, shoot him up, I'm going to go take it over. His mission in the world is actually the church. It's the church. So verse 18, Paul says that he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. Have you ever wondered why the church is called the body? This is where it comes from. Because the body, in this analogy, is inextricably linked to the head. By joining with Christ's body, you come under his headship. By joining with, under Christ's headship, you join his body. You can't get one without the other. The body of Christ, the church, is Christ's answer to a broken world. It's the start of his new creation. Going on, Paul says, He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. He's the beginning, which is easy enough to understand. He's the beginning of the church. It started with him. But he's the firstborn from among the dead. We're just talking about his resurrection. Jesus didn't just stay dead. He rose again. The fact that he was killed and his human body was put to death does not limit his power because he came back to life three days later and he conquered death. The greatest power that none of us have figured out a way to conquer So two quick things on this. We must center our church around Christ. We must. If if our church is not centered on doing the will of Christ, on preaching the hope of Christ, then we have no business being his body. If that's not what we're about, we might as well join a running club on Sunday mornings. But there's a reason why our church is called Christ Church. 
because we are centered on him. And we believe that his gospel is the hope of the world. Here's the second thing for us individually. You can't have the head without the body. You can't. It doesn't work. I know that so many people say, and you might have said it yourself, I've got my relationship with Jesus, and maybe I'll be a part of a church one day. That's not how it works. That is not the recipe for a steadfast faith. And I have to say this because I've seen it time and time again from my own family, from my own friends. More than being stuck in sin, more than having doubts about God's existence, not being connected to the body of Christ is the surest way to kill your faith. Because this is where new creation happens in real time. This is where the the center of God's hope is in his body, where his hands and feet are serving each other. And if you distance yourself from the body of Christ, you distance yourself from the head. The hard part about this is I imagine if you're here, you might not need to hear that. Right? Most of the people who believe that and are stuck there and their faith is dwindling and they're falling are gone, are away. And here's just a really, really simple application from this. Be the body of Christ. Invite people back in. Invite people back in. The numbers are staggering. The amount of the willingness of people who are Christians to actually come and join a church if they're invited. And that's your job. That's our job, is to invite them back in. So today, if you're panicking, if you're pacifying in those hard situations of your life, maybe you're isolating yourself from the church, distancing yourself from the body because it's too hard, start with prayer. To the one who is powerful over all creation and come and connect yourself to his body. Because this is where the hope of Christ dwells for the world. If you want to continue in your faith, you need a steadfast hope in the power of Christ. Maybe after hearing all this, I know it's a lot, it's a big vision of, of Jesus, but you say, my faith still feels weak. It feels shaky. I doubt it every day. Well, thankfully, there's another point. <laughs> which is the purpose of Jesus. It's not just that he is God and he's human. It's not just that he has all the power in all the world. It's what he chose to do with those two things. He chose to use his power and his person to reconcile you to God. That's what he used that for. Verse 19, let's look at that. It says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, And through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In Jesus Christ's person, being fully God, fully man, and his power over all things in the church, he is reconciled, he is reconciling, and he will reconcile all things. Past, present, future. 
But this is good news because it's not just like a hostile takeover. Jesus is being restored to his rightful place as king of the universe. And he's inviting you into it. So why reconciliation? Why is that the big deal? Well, reconciliation is a renewed peace between two parties that were once joined together but have since fallen away. I'm sure many of you have had those relationships that are broken that you would dream to have reconciled. You know what we're talking about here. And the idea is the exchange of the war of hostility for the peace of friendship. After sin entered the world, we didn't just become tainted. This is here that we became enemies of God. Because we fully separated ourselves from him as God in our lives. And the consequence of being separated from the Lord of life is death. In case you didn't think Paul was talking about you, he goes on, like I said, in verse 21 and 22, once you were enemies alienated from God, or once you were alienated from God and enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. In the garden, in Adam and Eve's mind, they were tempted to believe that they didn't need God, that their way of doing things would be better. And and they wrote their own morality into creation. And we are still seeing today the effect that that's had. But now, God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. How can he do this? How can he do this? Well, this is what the death of Christ accomplished. Because he was treated like an enemy to make us his friend. This is what God used his power in person for. Though he was completely holy in God's sight, he took on our sin on himself. Though he was the only one without blemish, he wore the crown of thorns. Though he was free from accusation, he was accused and he suffered the death penalty. He did this all so that he could reconcile you to God. You might say, I know all that, but my faith still feels weak. How do I know that that's true? How do I know that I will stay? Well, Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which I feel like I probably quote every sermon, so if you haven't read it yet, you need to. He has this analogy that I just can't get over. He says, he, God, does not just forgive us through his work on the cross and then hope that we make it the rest of the way. But picture a glider pulled up in the sky by an airplane, soon to be released and float down to earth. We are that glider when we put our faith in Christ. And Christ is the plane. But he never disengages. He never lets go, wishing us well, hoping that we can glide the rest of the way up to heaven. He carries us all the way. When your faith is steadfast on the hope of Christ's purpose and his power and his person, this is what's true of you. And this is the only way to have faith in the long haul. So we see from this passage, as we've said, that that steadfast faith grows in hoping in the person of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and the purpose of Jesus 
But I want to call us back to the opening analogy of the bonsai tree. In what way are you intentionally or unintentionally clipping the branches of Christ's deity, of his power, of his church? What are the ways in which you are not allowing God and his fullness to expand in your mind, in your heart? Because if you want a steadfast faith that grows and is for the long haul, that's the foundation of your hope. So, just a simple inventory that I want you to do this week. Read this passage again. And ask yourself, what are the things that I need to continue in if I'm going to continue in my faith? What are the things? Are you plugged into your community? Are you praying with other people and by yourself? Are you trusting in the purpose of God's reconciliation and having other people remind you of that as well? What are the things you need to stop doing? Because sometimes it's just cut it off. Do you need to stop isolating yourself? Do you need to stop putting your ultimate hope in that relationship, in that job? And maybe, what are the things that you need to start doing? Because no one's ever made it for the long haul without expanding their vision of who Jesus is. And there's plenty of people who've done a lot of thinking and growing on that fact. Um, In our uh, daily Bible reading series that we're going through right now, there are a few over there. Um, If you flip to the second page, there's a whole list of the attributes of God. And those of us who are doing this, uh, part of the practice is every day when we do this is to pick one of these attributes and to spend a couple minutes in silence thinking about it. That's not a big ask. But I can tell you for a fact, this kind of stuff is what expands your faith and lets it be steadfast for the long haul. And there's plenty of other things, but you're going to find that in the community of God. So my encouragement to you is to imagine that sequoia again. You can go to the next slide, Mitch. You can hardly see it because you can't really fit it all on the picture. But that's the vision of faith of Jesus that we need to have, is that he can grow our faith only to the proportion of of how much we hope in who he is, what he's done. And so that is my prayer for us as a church, that we would be a grove of sequoias in our faith. And that we would do that together. Let's pray. Father, only you hold all things together. Oh, that's such good news. If any one of us had the reins or the keys, uh, we would screw it up royally. (laughs) I pray for those, Father, here today who who feel like they have, who feel like they've, they've hoped in themselves or somebody else and have been let down, that they would continue in their faith. And Lord, for those who who come here and are hopeless and do not have a hope in you, I pray that they would find you utterly compelling and place their faith in you today. Lord, let us be the community that works together to build a steadfast hope in one another. 
that never disconnects from you as our head or us as a body. We pray this in your wonderful and holy name. Amen.